Welcome, everyone, to episode 68 Coffee Talks with Mike. Today, we're diving into, pun intended, Breathing Underwater by Richard Rohr. Uh, it is a book, subtitle, Spirituality and the 12 Steps. So it's a book that is walking alongside uh, the 12-step program and pulling out some of the deep truths within there that co-align with the gospel uh, through the lens of 12-step program. Um, elephant in the room, metaphorically, of course, is that my allergies are killing me right now. I feel like, oh man, my sinuses and everything are crazy. So who knows how this is going to end up sounding. I apologize in advance, but I did feel good enough to want to get this episode out, especially because I just met up with a dear friend to talk about this book the other day. And so um, a lot of it was fresh on my mind. It, as you can imagine, there are roughly 12 chapters, 12 steps. Actually, I think there's actually a 13th chapter because there's like a, I guess you could call it a postlude or an epilogue or what do you call it in a book? It's an epilogue. Yeah. Um, or postscript. That's what it's called here. Okay. You ever wonder what all these things are? Um, but I wanted to just give you some of the big ideas that I think Roar lays out and other news uh, related. It's so interesting to me how this kind of thing happens. Um, but I didn't realize until the other day talking with uh, with someone how many books by Roar I've actually read. Uh, I didn't really get into Roar's work until after college, which in my brain... I'm like, oh, yeah, that was like three years ago. In reality, <laughs> uh, it was more than three years ago. We'll just say that. And so I'm like, oh, yeah, I, I, uh, I haven't read that much. In reality, I've read a lot of books by Roar now. And there's like this tension between... Um, I, I'm suspicious of anyone that writes a lot of books. I'm suspicious that of the idea that they can all be great. And there are some books by Roar I didn't love and some books that I really enjoyed, this being one of them. That's why we're talking about it. I also realized Roar, you know, has written over decades and decades. And I am just now uh, getting to the party of so many of his thoughts and, and works. And some of the books that I've read, like we've, uh, I've done some stuff with the Wisdom Pattern, um, is actually just a reworking or like an updating of a book that he had already written. And so it's like, it, there's a lot going on with Roar's works. And as much of it, there's so much of it that overlaps, which is great. But there's enough fresh ideas from these different angles that it doesn't feel like you're just regurgitating the same ideas over and over and over again. Uh, I think that's the razor thin line between like, are you just like saying the same thing over and over again with a new title or is it the same thing related to other things? And the reason it's so interconnected is because it's consistent. And that's the great question. I think we all have to ask ourselves, do we fall into certain categories of thinking because we're consistent and we have thought all these things through or because we default to the same ideas over and over and over again. Similar results, perhaps the same results, very different reasons. That's something we should always be guarded against to the end of time, really. You always have to question your motives about why you land in a particular place at a particular time on a particular idea. So all that to say, I've read a lot of Roar. 
Um, I think I do still think that uh, the book Everything Belongs, which I know I did a few episodes on, perhaps I did the whole book actually in hindsight. Uh, I'll have to look back through our episodes. Um, that's my favorite book that Roar's done. And I think it kind of summarizes his scope and view of most things in general. But um, yeah, so all that's a lot of preamble to jump into this book, Breathing Underwater. And so uh, I'm going to read you a few lines. I may jump from chapter to chapter. I'm not going to just do the whole book, but I'll let you know where I'm pulling stuff from. Uh, So this is in the introduction. He says, I am personally convinced that it is the case uh, which might be the first foundational connection between the conne- the gospel and the twelve step program. Um, that that this is the case. There's this connection. He says it's helpful to see sin, like addiction, as a disease, a very destructive disease, instead of merely something that was culpable, punishable, or made God unhappy. If sin indeed made God unhappy, it was because. God desires nothing more than our happiness and wills the healing of our disease. I'm going to stop there for a moment. It's inevitable at this point. I just finished this series on the great divorce. Um, so I'm probably going to be thinking about that quite a bit. It's a book I reread every year, but I was helping teach it this year. So um, a lot of the ideas are really embedded and ingrained in everything I'm thinking about right now. Um, first, to unpack this roar quote, this idea that sin and addiction are both a disease is important, hopefully, to interpret roar charitably at this point. But he's not trying to downplay addiction. He's also not trying to downplay sin. He's trying to characterize the nature of both things. Uh, now, roar is a Catholic friar. Uh, often, Catholics have used the language of sin being a deep wound that we try to heal. Um, Or is not doing that in this particular place. He does elsewhere. But um, when you think about it that way, well, you have to heal a wound. You need to heal a disease. And that healing has to come from something beyond yourself. It can't just be your own efforts to heal the thing. He says, sin like addiction is a very destructive disease. Instead of merely something that was culpable, punishable, or made God unhappy. So he's saying, actually, the way we think about sin as just like, oh, there's the right way to do things, and then the sin way, the wrong way, the bad way. Well, that's actually reductive. To merely view sin as just doing things the wrong way is to miss the severity of what sin actually is. It's not something that makes God unhappy because it's like, I really wanted you to get to work on time. I really wanted you to obey this law. I really wanted you to fill in the blank. It It's a disease that breaks God's heart because it's not what we were created for. When we were made in the image of God and we were made to be in community together with God and one another, that was the intention. It was for joy. There's this line in The Great Divorce where one of the the ghosts, you don't have to know the whole context of the book, but it's basically about how do we become members of heaven, basically, in the afterlife. You have to become more solid, and it's all up to you. Someone asks one of these angels from heaven, what were we even made for? And the response is, you were made for infinite happiness. 
That's what you were made for. Now you just have to choose to take it, embrace it. But if you choose not to, for all kinds of reasons, then you'll miss it. If you settle for something lesser than, then you miss it. And so Rohr here says, if sin indeed made God unhappy, it's because God desires nothing more than our happiness and wills the healing of our disease. And often God heals us without our our knowing. So uh, there are all kinds of things going on behind the scenes that we aren't aware of. That's why we use the language of subconscious. And and Rohr will talk later in this book about this. I, I don't know if I'll pull out the quote Um in that, I don't know if I'll find it, but he talks about the reason some things are subconscious is because we're not aware of them, but they drive us. That's what it means to be subconscious. That's part of what silence and meditation and reflection are for. It's to become aware of the things that we have buried in the subconscious, to become conscientious of the subconscious, to to remind ourselves and to open our eyes so that we can see the things that are actually working in these moments and happening in these moments. And so if we can shift our gaze to understand sin, kind of like an addiction, kind of like this disease, and it's not, again, to be reductive to the substantive addictions that people usually are talking about when we use the word addiction in society. It's supposed to be expansive so that we can understand that many of us are addicted to something, which uh, rural build upon going forward. But he says, uh, I'll I'll continue here in the introduction. He says, we, um, uh, throughout the church history, unfortunately, shifted into this uh, mindset, mindset being a great word, in fact, uh, of theory over practice, doctrine over following. And he says, So we concentrated on how to worship Jesus as one united empire instead of following Jesus in any practical ways. Uh, He says, even though Jesus never once said, worship me, but he often said, follow me. The emperors, not popes or bishops, convened the next few councils of the church, and their concerns were usually not healing the masses, but of uniting an empire. And surely... Not Jesus' clear teachings on nonviolence, simplicity of lifestyle, and healing of those on the margins or the edges, he says, which would have derailed the urgent concerns of an empire as we still see to this day. There's a lot going on there, but think about what's happening. And it takes a little bit of church history to really get some of the the nitty-gritty punch of what Roar's pointing to, but he's saying uh, Jesus called us to follow him. Now, of course, we're supposed to worship God, but sometimes when we talk about worship, we we are so short-sighted and reductive in what we mean. Oh, we mean music. We mean a church service. We mean, like, no, no, no. Jesus taught people how to live. He said, follow me. Disciples are are learners. They're, they're trying to learn how to live. That's what we're called to do. It's not learn how to think. That's part of it. But we learn how to think so we can learn how to live. But so much of the church, even from the early stages in the first few centuries, missed it. It started to emphasize doctrine over practice. And it's because in the early church councils, it was emperors that were convening the church councils, emperors that were hearing the arguments for and against certain ideas and doctrines. He says, in the words of Roar, the emperors, not popes and bishops, were the ones convening the church councils. And their concerns as emperors 
were uniting their empire. It was not all of these practical things that Jesus was talking about, such as nonviolence, simplicity of lifestyle, and healing all the people in the margins, because those three things are counterproductive to the forward progress of an empire, right? If you have nonviolence, how do you take more land? Simplicity of lifestyle, how do you have an economy? Healing those on the margins, that costs money. And Rohr says these are still things we see to this day. This is one of the tensions of people that talk about like a Christian government. And it's like, well, what does that exactly mean? Usually it just means cultural values. That's usually what it's reduced to, especially in 2023, but I'm sure throughout time. But if we really are embedding like Acts chapter two, like ideas of what it means to be church, what it means to be a faith community, it's it's something that is far less endorsable from a Christian political party than than one might think. And so he goes on a little bit here. He says, our Christian preoccupation with metaphysics and the future became the avoidance of physics itself and the presence. So he's saying, because we started talking so much about these big abstract ideas, metaphysics, and the future, whether it means Christ's return or, or whatever it might be, we started avoiding and devaluing physical life now. We started devaluing the present moment because we just keep talking about how great things are going to be over then, you know, in the future, some far off time. He says, this is a problem. It's led to endless theorizing, endless taking of sides, endless generating of opinions about which we could be right or wrong. And it's trumped and toppled the universally available gift of divine indwelling the real incarnation, which still has the power to change the world. He's saying, us now in the present moment, that's the only moment we have. We can't keep talking about making things better down the line. We can't keep talking about, well, Jesus is going to come back down the line. We need to live now, live in connection with the Spirit now. He quotes Tertullian, one of these early church fathers, um, uh, apparently, sometimes first called uh, called the first Western theologian. Uh, I'm going to shank this. Uh, uh, I assume Latin, caro salutis cardo, which means the flesh is the hinge on which salvation swings and the axis on which it hangs. Say that again. The flesh, our humanity. We were created human on purpose. Remember that. It says that uh, the flesh is the hinge on which salvation swings and the axis on which it hangs. It says, when Christianity loses its material, physical, and earthly interests, sounds dangerous, but let the idea simmer. When Christianity loses its connection, loses its material, physical, and earthly interests, it has very little to say about how God actually loves the world into wholeness. When we stop talking about the physical realities in which we live in, when we devalue theology of the body, when we devalue the creation God has, has valued, well, we lose connection to the fact that God loves the world. And not just us, but God loves God's creation. And when we disconnect from physical reality because it's just all about ideas, we are emphasizing something important, but but de-emphasizing something also important. 
devaluing something that inherently has value. And so Roar is talking about like, we can't just continue to kick the can down the road and pretend like, oh, well, it's all just about the spiritual, all about the mind, all about the things we can't talk about and, uh, and, and see with our eyes. He says, we know that by experience, that's not what reality is. You can't talk about love in a physical way. Sure, there are things that are non-physical, non-seeable that are important, but there are plenty of things that are physically important too. So this false dichotomy of these two realities is part of what's tearing us apart on the individual level and the communal level. And so going on, this is the end of the introduction here. Well, I guess it's not. There's actually a few more pages. Um, <clears throat> this is introduction page uh, 25 in the Roman numerals. He says, we are all spiritually powerless, not just those who are physically addicted to a substance, which is why I address this book to everyone. Alcoholics, specifically, simply have their powerlessness visible for all to see. The rest of us disguise our powerlessness in different ways, and we overcompensate for our more hidden and subtle addictions and attachments, especially our addiction to our own way of thinking. So again, Roar is not trying to downplay what it means to be physically addicted to a substance of some sort, but rather is expanding the insidiousness of understanding addiction to anything, an addiction to things without a physical reality, right? Things that are not just physical substances you can point to and avoid, but things you're addicted to in your own psyche, in your own perception of the world, perhaps even your own thinking, it can be hard to admit that addiction because you can't separate yourself from it. You can't just avoid it. And so he says, <clears throat> those hidden and subtle addictions and attachments, like our own way of thinking, that was really um, pointed to me. That's what kind of sold me on the book. This is still just the introduction. He goes on, he says, we all take our own pattern of thinking as normative, logical, and surely true, even when it doesn't fully compute because we assume the best of ourselves, right? He's saying, we always assume our way of thinking is the right way, even in the ways that we admit it's not complete or not all the way right. He says, we keep doing the same thing over and over again, even if it's not working for us. That is the self-destructive, even demonic nature of all addiction or all sin, he says, and of the mind in particular. He says, we think... We are our thinking. Say that again. Uh, remember Descartes, right? I think, therefore I am. Roar says, we think we are our thinking. We think what we think is what defines us. He says, and we even take that thinking as utterly true, which removes us at least two steps from reality itself. So one, we think that our thinking is what defines us, and we think that all of our thinking is utterly true, which means now we're, we're twice as removed from reality by sticking to this kind of uh, perception. He says, we are really our own worst enemies, and salvation is primarily from ourselves. Salvation, saving, liberating. Our liberation is from ourselves. Our saving is from ourselves. He says, it seems that we humans would rather die than change or admit that we are mistaken. 
has a truer statement ever been said, surely. But this is one of the good ones. We would rather die than admit or change. It It's bizarre. And again, like uh, I can't recommend enough reading The Great Divorce by Lewis. It's a rocky start if you're not really sure about the premise of it, but it's a great book. And it explores that very idea that people are given a choice even in the afterlife. He says it's all allegory, but given a choice between heaven and hell or purgatory and heaven and and he says these ghosts, each of these ghosts in each chapter are choosing between one reality and another, one thing and another. And most of them would rather die. They'd rather return to hell than change themselves or admit that they were mistaken all along. They'd rather settle for the thing that they thought was good enough than step into infinite happiness and joy and satisfaction and reality. Go read The Great Divorce. We'll keep going, though. He says, this thinking mind, this is Roar, this thinking mind with a certain tit-for-tat rationality made the gospel itself into an achievement contest in which the one with the most willpower wins, even though almost everybody actually loses by the normal criteria. He says, this kind of thinking, this overthinking mind, reduced the good news, reduced the gospel, reduced the celebration of grace and liberation from ourselves, from addiction, from sin. Our thinking minds, our overthinking minds, our obsessive thinking minds have reduced the gospel into a contest, into a meritocracy of who has the most willpower. There are a lot of influencers online. They're all about willpower. And it's a very important thing. Don't get me wrong. But like the people that want to wake up crazy early, the ice baths, I'm going to run even on broken legs, like David Goggins, people like this, if you've not heard of them. And it's inspirational because you go, oh my goodness, how do you will yourself to do that every day? That's amazing. It's mind blowing. And then you go, well, everyone can will themselves. You just have to decide to. You just have to decide to let go. And anyone that starts talking about that when it comes to something like addiction realizes or you can start to realize they don't quite understand how insidious, how dark, how deep something like addiction or sin goes. It's not just a matter of willpower. And also, the people that have the most willpower to accomplish certain things doesn't necessarily mean that they are the closest to the heart of God. When you reduce the gospel into an achievement contest or a list of do's and don'ts, and then it's just about who has the most willpower to do and do not, well, you can miss it. We've got a perfect example of that in the Pharisees, right? People that knew all the laws, people that followed the laws, and they missed it. So it can't be just a pure meritocracy of do's and don'ts. War goes on. He says, that's how far the ego, and when you read the word ego, he says, read false self, or the Apostle Paul's word sarx in Greek, which means the flesh. Paul is constantly using the flesh as a dichotomy between Uh, the physical and the spiritual, or sinful flesh maybe would be helpful. He says, this idea of the achievement contest of the gospel, he says, that's how far the ego or false self or the flesh will go to promote and protect itself. It would sooner die than change or admit that it's mistaken. It would sooner live in a win-loss world in which most lose than allow God any win-win victories. Grace, oh, this is good. 
This is the hardest pill to swallow. Grace is always a humiliation to the ego, it seems. Let that sink in. The idea of grace is always a humiliation of the ego. I lost power the last two weekends. And uh, <laughs> the first time <clears throat> I uh, lost power for like two and a half days. So all my groceries are donezo from the fridge, which when you think about it, there's so much more in your fridge than like the week to week produce. It's all the condiments. It's all the stuff that you buy and you take for granted. Um, so that was a, that was a bit of a blow. Um, and I have a, a great friend who reached out and was like, oh, I want to send you some money to help you pay for groceries. And I was like, no, 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 it's all right. And truly it was, it was all right. It wasn't a big deal. I have not restocked my fridge completely, but I'm good. But there's always a part of like, I think most people have this internal thing and we'll say ego that resists being helped because we don't want the humiliation of needing help, of admitting that we need the help, of admitting that we're not self-sufficient, of admitting that actually life would be better if something from outside of myself was in my corner. Our culture celebrates this idea of like being self-made people. I did it all on my own. Well, literally you didn't. There's, there's no way you didn't. You were born. That's the first thing that happens to you and you did nothing to make it happen. And then when you were an infant, you were taken care of. And it might have been by your parents. It might have been by a foster family. It might have been by any number of people. But before you could form words, you were taken care of. And then after that, you were taught things. And then after that, you were given opportunities. And yes, there are people that are in large ways self-made in that they have that willpower gene. They have this desire to overcome obstacles. They may have been working four jobs to pay for school. There are all kinds of ways that people do pursue greatness by their own will. But you're not self-made. We're made by our community. We're made by our society. We're made by one another. We're made by God. There's so much more than just you deciding to do something. And it's short-sighted and limiting to think that every person has chosen their set of circumstances. Yes, there are stories of people that overcome dramatically difficult circumstances, but it's so ignorant to think that everyone that doesn't overcome their circumstances, it's because they just didn't want to enough. They didn't try hard enough. There's a lot of hardship in the world that you've not experienced, a lot of hardship that that challenges people in, in different ways, different kinds of people in different kinds of ways. And the reality is we all need grace at different points in our lives. From one another, we all at every moment need grace from God. And at every turn, grace, this free gift, something you don't deserve, but you're given anyways, at its deepest core, when we have addiction and sin and the false self raging, it's a humiliation. It humiliates our ego to admit that we were given something that we didn't deserve. And that's where we start the relationship of finding the true self, finding what it means to be an image bearer in its truest sense of having a real relationship with God is embracing grace, is embracing the reality that we're not sufficient on our own. 
But so much of the way the gospel is talked about is in this meritocracy, glorified willpower way of saying, well, it's all about, well, yeah, it's grace. It's a free gift of salvation. Now work really hard to prove that you deserve it, but you don't deserve it, but really you better prove you deserve it. That's not real grace because you've received the grace, the free gift, it's a humiliation, and you're so humiliated at every turn, you're like, ah, I got to prove that like it wasn't wasted on me. And it's not a free pass. This is the paradox. It's not a this free pass necessarily or this license to go just never live the way we were intended to because you already got grace. That's not what Roar, not what I, not what anyone really would say, not the majority anyways. It's this mysterious reality that we encounter. When, when you really come to terms with the humiliation of your ego, of the false self, of the disease of sin, and you let grace shower you with love and peace and joy, it changes the way you see the world around you. It changes how you see people. It changes how you see relationships. And we have to constantly be changed. That's part of the language of sanctification, to be sanctified, to be made more in the image of God, to chip away the things, the masks, someone like Thomas Merton would say, that we've learned to put on, the false self, to fit into these different places, grace chips away at that reality. And often we resist it because it's humiliating until you learn to just laugh about it, to laugh at all the ways you thought you had to pretend you had it all together on your own. It's something that Lewis plays out really beautifully and comically in The Great Divorce is just this reality that all these people have these egos on the line and the angels and the and the people that have already gone to heaven and they've come out to be guides to these ghostly people, they're like, yeah, we all got it wrong. You just have to laugh at yourself and then admit you got it wrong and just learn to get it right. Even the best intentioning people, intentioning is probably not a word, but people with best intentions also get it wrong. All of us at every turn, we have ego at play. And so we have to learn how to let go of it and, em and embrace grace. This is where Rohr goes for it. He says, at that level, organized religion is no longer good news for most people, but bad news indeed. Saying at the level in which people would rather live in this win-lose world where most people have to lose rather than a world where God is in a win-win victory because grace is a humiliation to the ego. He says, on that level, organized religion isn't really good news anymore. Think about that. Does God get what God wants? And it doesn't mean that there's nothing in our own will to be done, but that's the fundamental question of grace is, is what is our response to it? Do we deny that it's there or do we embrace good news? And Rohr says the reason that organized religion ends up as no longer good news is because it embraces this willpower perspective. And he says it sets up for us or sets us up for the massive amounts of atheism, agnosticism, hedonism, and secularism that we now see in almost all formerly Christian countries and in those who just keep up the external trappings of Christianity. Or says, I now have more people tell me they are recovering Catholics than those in recovery from addiction. 
He says, I'm told that for every person that is joining the church, three are leaving. Are all the bad, all these people bad or insincere? I doubt it. Perhaps we failed to give them good news that they actually desired, needed, and expected. Now, the cynical take on that sentence from Rohr, perhaps we failed to give them good news they desired, needed, and expected, would be all these people that are leaving the church are bad, they're insincere, and they're just mad that the church isn't giving them what they wanted. The church didn't co-sign their bad theology. The church didn't justify their sinful lifestyle. Rohr is saying, and I think I'd agree, that's, that's probably not actually the case, unless you really think that that many people are walking away from the church. In fact, now that we have the internet the way that we do, and we have so many uh, research studies being done, <clears throat> when these massive amounts of people are being interviewed and questioned about what, what are they walking away from, it's, it's from something else. It's not that they don't believe in a God or in God himself, in the Christian religion necessarily, or in others even. It's that something about the organized religions that they have been a part of have fallen short. And it's not usually starting with some doctrinal disagreement. It's the practical missing of the mark. And of course, this can't be one size fits all. Of course, there are going to be people that walk away because the church said something they didn't like, and the church has to stand its ground and all these kinds of things. Of course, that's the case, but it is so unbelievably short-sighted and ignorant to just say anyone that walks away from a practicing faith is just insincere. They just got tired of doing it after a while. I mean, that's an easy way to see the world, but it's far too simplistic to capture the nuance and the complexity of what's happening. And it, and it lets us all off the hook, frankly, as the church, capital C, that, that we have been poor reflections of what it means to be the body of Christ. Rohr is saying the way that organized religion goes, when we allow it to just become a celebration of willpower, it fails to give people good news, the gospel, that they truly, in their soul, in their deepest being, there's good news they truly desired, needed, and expected. And so, he says the 12-step program has often become a program for mere sobriety from a substance, and it doesn't always move people toward a vital spiritual experience. He says, if we can speak on the traditional Christian stages of the spiritual journey as one, purgation, two, illumination, and three, union, too many addicts never get, um, never get to the second stage, illumination, anything really spiritually illuminating. Um, and even fewer get to that third stage, which is a rich life of experienced union with God. So he's saying often people stop at that that first step of giving up, like let's just stop this action and that will be enough. He says mere sobriety is not the goal. That is the first step, but it's not the end. He says the 12-step 12 12 program is often stayed at the problem-solving level and missed out on the ecstasy itself of a trustful intimacy with God, or what Jesus consistently called the wedding banquet. He says the world, and he references Matthew 22 there. <clears throat> he says the world was left with the difficult task of trying to live with an even more difficult dry drunk. Uh, these are people who do not drink or take drugs anymore, which is great, but they drive the rest of us to want to drink by their all or nothing thinking 
which distorts and destroys most calm and clear dis- uh, communication. And he's saying, so he's saying like, in the same way, you can see this parallel perhaps with a fundamentalism. I'm not even talking about conservatism there. Fundamentalism in any arena, this all or nothing, do or do not. Uh, and in the same category, this uh, dry, <clears throat> dry drunk kind of thing. If you reduce it to just merely the substance itself, the symptom of the problem, if you reduce it merely to what you do and what you don't do, if you reduce it to a Pharisaic worldview, of here are the laws we follow and here are the laws we'll never break, you still cannot guarantee step two, illumination, and step three, true union with God. As an addict, if you're merely just a dry drunk, you're usually still just miserable. You've given up the thing that was causing this downward spiral, but you haven't really embraced this joy. And this is what Roar is summarizing. I'm not trying to speak to that uh, myself. But I think on the spiritual level, I can speak to a little bit. I've absolutely seen a lot of people. I grew up in places like this. I've seen this in different cultures, different uh, by cultures, I'm meaning more like church cultures, people that emphasize only the laws, only the do's and don'ts. They don't necessarily seem like they've really embraced the illumination over their entire lives or this union with God that changes the way they encounter not only their friends, but their enemies which was a big part of what Jesus talked about. He's saying, yeah, actually this whole dry drunk mentality, stopping at the purgation, stopping at the do's and don'ts, it makes it hard to be around people like this because they don't see the complexity and nuance of the world. You have to embrace illumination. You have to embrace union with God. And so now I think we're here at the uh, the end. We are. Okay, great. So I guess we'll stop the introduction today. He says, it's my experience based on more than, this is on page, what says, 27 of the introduction, Roman numeral 27. In my experience, based on more than 50 years as a priest, um, most well-intentioned Christian and clergy, their religion has never touched them or healed them at the unconscious level, where all the real motivations and hurts, unforgiveness, anger, wounds, and illusions are stored, hiding, and often fully operative. Remember, I was talking about subconscious. He's saying most people that embrace this faith, even clergy, even the the priests and the pastors and all these people, self-proclaimed decades-old followers of Jesus, never really let their, their faith, let that good news sink deep to that unconscious level. He says, Christians are usually sincere and well-intentioned people until they get to any real issues of ego, control, power, money, pleasure, and security. It says then they tend to pretty much be like everybody else. We often gave them a bogus version of the gospel, some fast food religion without any deep transformation of the self. And remember, this transformation of the self is not just in the do's and don'ts. There may be a reality in which you began to follow Jesus and now you stopped doing some of those bad things that you did before. That is a good thing, but it's not the final thing. It's just one of the things. He says, yeah, this is a fast food religion without any deep transformation of the self. The result has been the spiritual disaster of quote-unquote Christian countries that tend to be a consumer-oriented, proud, warlike, racist, class-conscious, and as addictive as everybody else, and often more so, I'm afraid. 
That might be really offensive to hear. I'm not speaking for all of you listening, but he's saying that if our, our faith is not truly hitting us on the deepest levels, when we just label ourselves a Christian country, we still see the same problems we see in all the other countries. We see the consumer orientation. We see the pride raging. We see the warmongering. We see the racism, classism. We see the addictions taking over people left and right. He says people were Catholic, for example, because they were Italian, Spanish, or Irish. Not because they, quote unquote, did the steps of Catholicism or had any vital spiritual experience that changed their lives. They were culturally brought into that thing. He says, we must be honest here and not defensive. The issues are now too grave and too urgent. Our inability to see our personal failures is paralleled by our inability to see our institutional and national sins too. It's the identical pattern of addiction and denial or false selfhood and denial or sin and denial. He says, thank God that John Paul II, one of the, or Pope John Paul II, I should say, introduced into our, our vocabulary words like structures of sin and institutional evil. He says, it was not even part of the conversation in most of Christian history up to now, um, as we exclusively, exclusively concentrated on quote unquote personal sins. The three sources of evil were traditionally called the world, the flesh, and the devil. We concentrated on the flesh so much that we let the world and the devil get off scot-free. He says, we have our work cut out for us. And the 12-step program has made it very clear that this is indeed work. It's not fast food or cheap grace. Gospel people need to do their honest inner work. And steppers need to do the steps. And both need to know that they are then eating from the very rich and nutritious marrow of the gospel. And so he says, here are the four assumptions about addiction he's writing with. And I'll just give you the one-liners. One, we are all addicts. We are, as human beings, addictive by nature. Two, stinking thinking is the universal addiction. He says, substance addictions like alcohol and drugs are merely the more visible forms of addiction. <clears throat> but actually, we're all addicted to our own habitual way of doing anything our own defenses, and especially our own pattern way of thinking. He says the very fact we have to say this shows how blinded we are uh, inside of it. By definition, we can never see or handle what we're addicted to. It's always, quote unquote, hidden and disguised as something else. As Jesus did with the demon of Gerasa, someone must ask, what is your name? This is a response says, we are legion. He's saying, we need to have Jesus ask, what is your name to the addictions we cling to? He says, the problem we must uh, must be correctly named before the demon can be exercised. We cannot heal what we do not first acknowledge. So the first assumption, we're all addicts as humans. The second assumption is stinking thinking is our universal addiction. Number three, all societies are addicted to themselves and create deep codependency on themselves. Okay, number four, some form of alternative consciousness is the only freedom from these addictions and from cultural lies. Saying this alternative consciousness, it's not just, okay, I just decided today I'm going to think differently now. We have to have a different mind entirely. And this is where that grace, that humiliation of the ego comes in. It's not just by our own efforts. He ends 
the introduction saying this, when religion does not move people to the mystical or non-dual level of consciousness. Mystical and non-dual. Non-dual meaning not false dichotomies, not polarization, not left or right or red or blue or this or that. He says when religion, and religion can be a dirty word sometimes, so just hear it this way. When the organized pursuit of faith does not move people to the mystical and non-dual level of consciousness, it is more a part of the problem than of any solution whatsoever. If we as a people pursuing faith in community, and we can call ourselves a religion, when we aren't helping to move people toward this mystical, non-dual level of consciousness, a real encountering of God, we're not part of the solution, we're part of the problem. It solidifies anger, it creates enemies, and it almost always is exclusionary of the most recent definition of sinner. And at this level, it is largely incapable of its supreme tasks of healing, reconciling, forgiving, and peacemaking. And when religion does not give people an inner life or a real prayer life, it's missing its primary vocation and calling. So let me sum up then the foundational ways that I believe Jesus and the 12 steps of AA are saying the same thing, but with different vocabulary. We suffer to get well. We surrender to win. We die to live. And we give it away to keep it. The counterintuitive wisdom will for always or will forever be resisted, denied, and avoided until it is forced upon us by some reality over which we are powerless. And if we're honest, we are all powerless in the presence of full reality, capital R. When we're truly in the presence of God, we are powerless but we become empowered only if we first admit that powerlessness, only if we are able to give up our own ways of thinking to embrace God's wisdom. Can we really begin to encounter reality as we were made to? This book was so good. And uh, while you're not surprised that it took 40 some minutes to talk about the introduction at this point, um, it is a relatively short book, actually. It's only like a hundred and 10 pages or so, 120 maybe. Um, and each of the chapters, it's like 13, they're pretty bite-sized. So I, I really encourage you to check it out. I think it's a um, a really helpful tool for all kinds of reasons. I'll probably do another episode or two, just unpack some of these ideas because I think it's, it's excellent. So hope that was helpful, Breathing Underwater. He says that the title of the book comes from this idea that our whole society, our whole culture, our whole world is drowning. Drowning in addiction, drowning in in self-deception, and we need to learn how to breathe underwater. We need to learn the words of scripture to quicken ourselves, to become awake, become aware of the reality in which we're living in and the ways that we're deceiving ourselves, not slipping back into moralistic finger pointing. That doesn't help anybody, but rather to learn what it means to really be followers of God disciples who follow and worship, not worship at the expense of following. So this has been Breathing Underwater by Richard Rohr. Hope you enjoyed it. would love to chat with you about it. And uh, hopefully my voice and allergies all get better very quickly. Easter's coming very soon. So go in peace. Talk to you soon.